Hey everyone, this is Dave Cruz from Flyber Labs, a podcast on business and innovation in the Midwest and beyond. Here you'll meet fascinating people and learn about new technologies and practices that will change how you look at life and business. Enjoy. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Flyover Labs. This is uh, Dave Cruz uh, from Madison, Wisconsin. And today we have renowned researcher with us, Peter Lee. And Peter is the Corporate Vice President and Head of Microsoft Research. And before that, Peter was a longtime professor at Carnegie Mellon, where his research included cybersecurity and software reliability. And in 2014, Peter was also appointed by President Obama. Yep, yep, that it's that president. It's like the president of presidents as a member of the Cybersecurity Commission. And in 2004, he took a leave of absence from Carnegie Mellon to go to DARPA, where he founded and directed a, a new technology office that created uh, research and development programs in computing and related areas in the social and physical sciences, which sounds quite interesting. So I, I'm excited to hear. I brought Peter on because I'm really excited to hear about his background and uh, research focus and uh, you know why he switched to Microsoft and talk about more about the Cybersecurity Commission, if we can. So, uh, Peter, really appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks for joining us today. Um, thanks, Dave. It's uh, great to be here, and thanks for having me. Definitely. And so, before we jump into you know um, your research now, could you give us a little background? Like, where are you from? Were you always interested in technology, or when do you start getting interested? Just curious to learn a little bit more about uh, about you. Yeah, sure. Um, I, uh, I actually grew up uh, not too far from Madison in Upper Michigan, a little town called Houghton. So I guess oh yeah, that would be fly fly under. Yeah, that's country. right. That's right. <laughs> and uh, um, you know, and uh, you know, I had uh, you know, I'm of uh, Korean heritage. I was born in Columbus, but my parents immigrated from Korea, and uh, my dad uh, was a physics professor, and my mom a chemistry professor. So pretty. You know, you can imagine pretty hardcore Asian <laughs> science <laughs> household, um, and um, and then um, went to University of Michigan. Um, probably disappointed my parents to study math instead of physics or chemistry. That's yeah. um, so and, easy. Uh, math. No, I'm, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And and then um, you know. Um, uh, you know, eventually uh, got very interested in computer science and and finished my PhD. Went to grad school at Michigan uh, in computer science and and then from there, after my PhD, went to Carnegie Mellon to be a professor. Um, and I was there for for a long time, for 23 years, and um, and, and and ultimately the head of computer science there. Um, and then, as as you mentioned, I went to uh, after uh, in 2008, actually uh, went to DARPA and um, uh, and uh, really learned a lot there. And then from there, um, uh, instead of returning to Carnegie Mellon, uh, ended up here at Microsoft. Gotcha. And, and so, what year did you start at uh, Carnegie Mellon? In uh, way back in 1987. Okay. And, and uh, yeah. It was your what was your research fo- focus around security at that point? You know, um, back then, um, you know, I was just out of grad school, and my PhD research was really in a much more theoretical uh, uh, part of computer science, uh, which is called formal semantics. And so that—that's, uh, I think, most people consider it a very theoretical, really abstruse 
uh, part of um, the field of computer science where you're trying to use mathematics to understand the meaning of programs and programming languages. And, um, and when I got to Carnegie Mellon, you know, one of the things that uh, I got exposed to uh, was uh, what we now call cybersecurity or com- computer security. And one of the challenges in computer security, um, of course, has to do with keeping secrets, um, which is handled by different forms of encryption or cryptography. But another big part, an even bigger part of cybersecurity has to do with how do we know what a program will do? Um, if, so if I were to send you a piece of code and ask you to execute it, how can you trust that it's safe to do that? And that's, that question has become a bigger and bigger one uh, over the past 30 years uh, as the Internet has sort of become a platform for code sharing. And um, and so all of the theoretical work I had done as a PhD student in trying to kind of mathematically or formally understand the meaning of programs ended up being very relevant to computer security. Interesting. That makes sense. And yeah, you see it a lot where you kind of combine two two uh, areas of expertise and you become like the expert. <laughs> um, that's interesting. And and so are you still working in Because you're right. I mean, with the internet... How do you know if a program or application is safe to open or what's it going to do exactly? Are you still working in that space? And and how, and if not, or how has that space evolved since you uh, started researching it back in 1987? Right. Well, you know, in my position as a VP here now at Microsoft Research, um, of course, I still have a real interest there, but... Um, you know, uh, one thing about age and as you move up the corporate ladder is um, you tend to get uh, less and less technical or more and more stupid. I don't know which one. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Right. <laughs> and and so, uh, and so, <laughs> so basically, uh, management issues really yeah. end up, uh, you yeah. know, consuming uh, a lot more uh, of, uh, you know, of my thought process. But on top of that, you know, Microsoft Research um, is a pretty big place. You know, we have about 1,200 researchers in 11 labs around the world, and and so we cover a lot of space. And so, so for sure, computer security is is a big area, and, and generally the trustworthiness of the internet and of mobile phones and of laptops and the Windows operating system, all of that. That's a big deal. But there are other areas um, like machine learning and artificial intelligence um, or the architecture, the computer systems architecture and network architecture of our cloud um, or, you know, the, the kind of um, uh, room tracking and computer vision capabilities and optics in HoloLens. Uh, all of those things end up being areas where, you know, where uh, I have some management responsibility uh, now at, at, uh, at Microsoft Research. So, you know, my heart will always be uh, in computer security and the people who work in computer security in the labs here, uh, maybe they get a little bit of extra special <laughs> attention from me just yeah. because I can pretend more like I know what I'm That's right. talking about. Wanted or, <laughs> or unwanted attention. <laughs> right. <laughs> um <laughs> But you know, it's uh, uh, you know, it, 
but in in reality, day to day, you know, I, I have a much broader kind of uh, set of topics now to to worry about. Definitely, and and I want to talk more about DARPA, but first. Uh, I, I you I think you probably have one of the most interesting jobs in the world, in my opinion, because you do get to touch on so many interesting things, probably with the, some of the best experts in the world. Um, yeah. So what what led you to Microsoft? Was it did you go to Microsoft to, as a had had Microsoft research or what was your initial? Uh, um, right. No, I started a little differently. I um, gee, you know, I. Um, all of these things feel accidental to me, honestly. Um, I, <laughs> I, you know, when I was uh, reached the point of being head of computer science at Carnegie Mellon, I, I really felt that I had the best academic job in the world, hmm. and it, it's such a wonderful place, and it's uh, just a stupendously great computer science department, and amazing stuff happens there. Um, you know when. Um, in 2008, when President Obama was elected, um, a friend of mine, um, a guy named Tom Khalil, got appointed um, the policy director for science and technology policy in the White House. And so, you know, he leaned on all of his friends to write little two-page position papers on, you know, what the new administration should be doing in science and technology. And... Um, I foolishly agreed to write a <laughs> a short two pager about DARPA, oh. and uh, and so you know I and I had some knowledge of, about DARPA because I was on various advisory boards and so on uh, for that agency. But um, but the the real impact of writing that wasn't so much the ideas I put in in the white paper, but um, but that was used to pressure me into going to DARPA to serve, <laughs> <laughs> nice. and so. Um, uh, and but then I, uh, you know, I went and I had a, a wonderful time at DARPA, and I really, I grew both intellectually and just as a as a leader uh, a lot there. And and while I was there, um, you know, I would run into other people um, at different companies um, who, you know, uh, also would have an interest in someone who was willing to work in kind of management positions in technology or tech innovation or research. And uh, a couple of those people were uh, Rick Rashid, who was the founder of Microsoft Research, um, and Craig Mundy, who was essentially the chief technology officer for Microsoft at the time. And uh, and they they slowly and steadily, you know, worked me over and, <laughs> and exposed me to the idea of coming to Microsoft Research, and um, and so when I finally did um, agree to do that, I, I came um, as the director of the Microsoft Research Lab in the headquarters here in Redmond, Washington, and and so that's that's how I got my start here. Gotcha. Okay, and and at and at DARPA, how you know you, you mentioned that you you grew a lot. So how, how did you grow, and what did you learn that you that was different than at Carnegie Mellon? Yeah, DARPA is really a magical place. I don't know uh, how much your listeners know oh, about this. Um, you know, it, it, it's um, you know, it 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 it, it uh, its name has changed uh, uh, between ARPA and DARPA. You know, ARPA stands for the Advanced Research Projects Agency, and then the, if it's called DARPA, it's the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. And um, and DARPA was 
uh, created um, in the year after the Russians launched Sputnik. And so um, th- that was sort of a cathartic experience for the uh, event, for the U.S. Uh, kind of national defense establishment, uh, because it suddenly opened up space as a, as a possible frontier for national security and for military operations, and the Russians were ahead. And, and that surprise really shocked uh, the U.S. Defense Department. And so uh, DARPA was created uh, in the year after that happened to, with the mission to prevent technological surprise. And, um, and it really did some amazing things. You know, it worked on the booster rocket technology for the Saturn V that put men on the moon. Um, it invented the ARPANET, which eventually became the internet. Uh, it invented the field of material science, uh, did a lot of work on robotics, stealth fighters, drones. You know, it's just a pretty incredible, uh, place with an amazing history. Um, and, Maybe the thing that was kind of most amazing is um, it's very failure tolerant. Um, DARPA is willing to try lots of different things. And most of the things that it tries end up not panning out, and some of them end up being patently ridiculous in <laughs> retrospect. Um, but, um, but you know, the one out of 20 or one out of 50 times when a wacky idea ends up being uh, working out somehow, uh, it ends up changing the world. Uh, there's a famous story in DARPA when, you know, uh, DARPA had invented the idea of GPS and uh, had been involved in the uh, in developing the first satellites for the GPS constellation in space. But then there's question of these bulky GPS receivers that had to be carried on ships or trucks, and um, and so someone had the idea. Well, maybe we can make them smaller, small enough for a soldier to carry. And um, they got a bunch of top scientists together and concluded that it was physically impossible. The physics just you know, wouldn't support a very small device. Uh, but in the legend, the DARPA is that the director said, I don't care. That's your mission. Go execute. And, you know, that's the kind of decision that I saw uh, get play out often at DARPA. And oftentimes the physics is right that, you know, you end up failing because, um, some things just aren't possible, but sometimes the physics is wrong, and uh, we end up having, you know, GPS in virtually you know every pocket mm-hmm. uh, in around the world, and so you know it, that kind of thing is just getting exposed to that and trying to understand it and and have it shape how I think about managing research and tech innovation. I, I, it was just a tremendous learning experience for me, and and just the idea of Tolerating sometimes some embarrassing failures um, is, um, you know, it was another growth experience. That's interesting, right? And pushing the boundaries of of technology, it's it's probably easy to take a step back and be like, oh, this probably isn't realistic. But to to push it a little bit harder, you might get that result that can change the world. Which is, uh, yeah, you know, the very first project I had when I arrived at DARPA, um, I had a bunch of what are called service chief fellows. These are kind of up and coming, kind of rising stars in the armed services, um, like the kind of captain level. And, um, and they, there's a program where a few of them get to spend three months with a DARPA 
um, office director. So, so I, I get these 10 servicemen and women and we have to, we're supposed to have a project and uh three month project. And so we do all this brainstorming and there are all these ideas floating around and we come up with this great idea to have a balloon hunt. We're going to have these big <laughs> eight foot red weather balloons um, in these public, but undisclosed locations um, for eight hours uh, on the, 40th anniversary of the birth of the ARPANET and uh, whoever can find those uh, balloons, those 10 balloons first um, wins $40,000. And so we're just all charged up and excited about this. This is going to really test the power of social networks and so on. I, uh, the day ends, I go back to my apartment and wake up in the morning and realize, Oh my God, you know, what a crazy idea. I have no credibility in the U.S. military, and I'm going to spend, you know, 40000 plus of our taxpayers' dollars on a wacky balloon hunt. You know, there's right. just no way I can do this. And so I was supposed to report to the DARPA director that morning what our plan was. And so I go to her office, and I tell her, look, we really brainstormed all week. I thought we had a good idea yesterday, but I realized this morning it's not going to work out, so we're going to need more time. And so the director said, okay, well, tell me anyway what your idea was yesterday. And so I tell her the whole idea, and she kind of uh, thinks for a minute, and she says, yeah, that does sound like a completely stupid idea, but this is DARPA, <laughs> and we know that disruptive ideas are fragile and fleeting. Uh, that's the, the phrase, fragile and fleeting. That's the idea you thought was good yesterday. That's what you're going to execute. Interesting. And so she forced me to do it. And it turned out to be a very important experiment and demonstration. But that kind of culture, um, to kind of really put yourself into very uncomfortable spots, was um, really DARPA was the first place I I got exposed to that. Yeah, what what a wonderful environment. Man, that sounds uh, exciting. And and can you give the... The results of the balloon hunt, um, just for people who didn't sure. know. I mean, I remember it clearly. It was a, I thought it was a, a pretty sweet idea. Um, but yeah. Yeah, it was an amazing thing. Um, there were about four thousand four hundred uh, teams um, that registered for the competition, um, and these are teams from all over the world. I mean, we had entries from China, from Russia, uh, even a couple of uh, entrants from Syria. Huh. Um, the, uh, it was war, uh, and so there was a Russian hacker group that hacked the website that had the um, like the FAQ for the competition, and they they put a uh, a virus there so that if you uh, using certain web browsers, if you went uh, to that web page, you could get infected um, with a virus that when you went to report balloon sightings, you would actually get redirected to a spoof website run by that no Russian way. group. Oh, that's clever. Um, that's clever. And uh, so it was a just a wild, wild thing. Um, in the end, the uh, a team from the MIT Media Lab uh, ended up uh, using various social media and data mining techniques to find the location of all 10 balloons in just under nine hours, in about eight hours and 56 minutes, which is uh, truly uh, an amazing accomplishment. Um, and there were quite a few other teams um, that... Uh, in that same time period, had found either eight or nine of the balloons. And wow. so there were, uh, it was an, an amazing thing. And, you know, these are all teams without any of the resources of you know, spy satellites or, you know, armies to direct 
you know, they, they were just using social incentives on the internet and, to kind of recruit people and and uh, and uh, you know sift through you know all of the chatter and um, you know really kind of prove the point um, and the ideas that came out of it ended up uh, being uh, impactful um, in our operations in. Uh, Afghanistan, uh, but also other organizations like the United Nations and uh, various um, uh, political campaigns in different parts of the world ended up using social some of the social structures and, and uh, social media incentives that were uh, kind of developed for the, uh, by various teams in the uh, the DARPA Network Challenge in, in their own campaigns. So so it was uh, it was really a very very interesting and and uh, kind of high impact demonstration after all. So I'm so I'm glad I was forced to do it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's a crazy <laughs> idea that turned out to be a brilliant. Um, and we haven't even talked about Microsoft yet. So and I know we're we only have uh, so much time. But I, I am curious. I've always been curious of this. How, how did you decide where to put the balloons? Ah, uh, that was uh, there was a lot of secrecy there. You know um, the. Um, and so uh, we had a, there's a standard sort of concept of operations um, for that kind of thing that the the, the ten servicemen and women that um, were interning with me uh, had developed. Um, there were actually twelve balloons because um, uh, there were two backup locations in case anything went wrong, um, and we had to do uh, very secretive things because there were teams that were actively monitoring sales of helium uh, around the country. <laughs> what? So, 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 yeah, so, so it ended up being actually uh, quite a, uh, quite an operation with real uh, military con-ups involved. Wow. That's yeah. cool. All right. Um, interesting. Oh, and so how did you decide where to locate them? Uh, um, so, you know, we wanted a, uh, First of all, we wanted a diversity of spots, and we also wanted the things to be uh, very public, and um, and so you know, uh, or you know, in areas where anyone in public, you know, could be allowed to go. Um, and so, so we did, uh, first of all broke things down geographically uh, into three segments: kind of uh, eastern seaboard, um, uh, west of the Rockies, and uh, central uh, U.S. And then, then we divided things between urban, suburban, and rural um, areas. And um, and then finally, uh, we wanted um, areas that had a mix. Uh, we did have uh, a, a Navy operation that was going to use some satellite um, systems. Um, so we also just wanted to test um, in different kinds of areas in kind of wooded balloon sighting that was reported. Uh, it was a balloon that was in Union Square in San Francisco, um, and that was reported by a, a team of uh, psychics. <laughs> no way. <laughs> yeah. Who, uh, <laughs> and that was the only balloon that they they could see, I guess, using their psychic powers. But, wow. but it, <laughs> it didn't look too crack. <laughs> You never know. You never know it's going to work. Right. <laughs> uh, well, let's... Uh... Let's move. We only have a few minutes left, so let's move on to Microsoft. And uh, 
I mean, like I said, you probably have one of the most interesting jobs in the world. I mean, I'm sure every day to day it doesn't feel like that, but man, uh, what you have so many different interesting areas, each each one of which could be a a podcast on its own. Um, you know, what are some areas and technologies that you're especially excited about um, that kind of have an overarching um, a feel to them, like across all of Microsoft or or maybe just it just doesn't have to be an overarching feel, but just something you're excited about. Sure. Um, well, I think you know artificial intelligence and and in particular machine learning is is really just so huge right now. Yeah, you know it sort of started, I think, for us um, with the um, with dealing with language with human language um, and. You know, uh, a huge amount of machine learning research you know, went in initially into the Bing search engine because you're trying to understand the World Wide Web and all the web pages, but also all the queries and and uh, links that are clicked on um, and entered by by users. Um, but as our capabilities and research has advanced, you know, we are just getting so close to being able to have. Um, the ability to recognize speech, human speech, to translate languages, uh, to understand uh, what people are talking about. So the whole area of language processing is just leading to lots of things. For example, uh, we worked very hard to put automatic language translation into Skype. Um, and so if you're using Skype on Windows, that's now a, a built-in feature, at least for eight languages. Yep. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's not perfect yet, but the thing about the modern AI systems is that they get better with experience. Uh, these systems are constantly learning, and so the more they're used, uh, the better they get. And so um, that's just incredibly exciting. And that's now moving uh, beyond language to vision, computer vision. And um, there's just so much um, uh, possibility uh, there as well. So AI is a big deal. Uh, another one is um, in computer architecture and systems. Um, you know, our cloud, uh, Azure, is um, growing uh, about doubling every year, and it's uh, it's huge. You know, there are like 130 data centers around the world now. Um, but, you know, we're starting to reach, within a few years, the end of Moore's Law. And so uh, exactly how we maintain the, you know, uh, the growth to meet demand uh, in cloud computing is leading to lots and lots of interesting new kind of computer architecture and systems research questions. And so those two things end up being really major kind of areas that, that we're thinking a lot about. Gotcha. And do you, you, know, uh, you, you, know, okay. you said a couple of times about having a, a fun job. It is fun. There's a lot of, Pressure. The way I've sort of described the job here, not just for me, but a bunch of my colleagues, is it's a lot like the first time riding a roller coaster. You know, it's, um, you know, the, I remember as a kid, the first time I rode a roller coaster, I was so jazzed up and excited, and I would get strapped in. And then as I went up that first hill, slowly, I realized that, that it was a big mistake. I needed to get off. <laughs> And, and and then by the time you finish that first ride, you want to ride it again. And and I think right now in the tech industry and in my job, it's a lot like that. You know, it's 
it is fun and exciting, but it's also scary because the pressure to innovate and invent um, is getting more and more extreme, not just at Microsoft, but I think across the tech yeah. industry. Definitely. And, and right. And that, and otherwise and on an annual basis, you kind of have to show steps towards new products, new innovations. And, and what have you seen is the best way to innovate, you know, to kind of take the giant leaps um, as far as like the size of the team, where ideas come from. Um, yeah. Yeah. What's been your experience? Well, you know, in, in my experience, the smartest people thrive um, uh, if you um, gather enough of them together. So there's a critical mass and, and then leave them alone, make sure they're well resourced and leave them alone. Um, any attempt to kind of meddle um, ends up being kind of productive. And so then the trick is, uh, when ideas start to mature to the point that we could bring them into products or into practice, um, you then need to somehow create the right kind of team with lots of engineering and and kind of product design support to to harness all the good research that's been developed and then really kind of have a almost like a skunk works kind of level of of a kind of mission focus. And so, you know, one of the things I think about the most is just exactly, you know, when is the right time to to try to, you know, harvest um, some research knowledge Uh, and otherwise try hard to resist the temptation to kind of meddle in, in the, in the research that people are trying to do on a day-to-day basis. And, and I, I get that wrong uh, a lot, um, <laughs> uh, anyone would, but, you know, it's, it's sort of fundamentally the, you know, innovation is such a weird, intangible, abstract yeah. thing. You know, roughly speaking, everyone is sort of, including me, is does it sort of by the seat of the pants. Um, but I, I think of it as a harvesting model. You know, you're allowing great ideas to kind of be incubated and nurtured. And then you're trying to find exactly the right time when to go all in on something and, and, and try to form research ideas into and results into, into some great new experience or a great new solution uh, that, that has some, has some real value. Definitely. And like, and like you said, timings around that is, well, there's no exact answer. So it's a, as much a quality as right. quantitative trying to figure out that is. And, and, and I know we're pretty much out of time, but I, one last question was, I, I, how do you come up with new ideas? Well, I mean, I'm sure coming up with new ideas is not always an issue, but how do you come up with ideas and then vet them? Cause you have probably so many things you could be working on. You know, how did the HoloLens yeah. get from idea to where it is now? Cause that's quite an innovative, you know, yeah. unusual idea. Well, so, yeah, so there, uh, I think about this in sort of three buckets, and in the portfolio, um, I try to have some balance in these three buckets. Um, you know, one is not everything is pure invention. Uh, a company like Microsoft has gigantic technical, hard technical problems that require research to solve. And, um, and so, you know, one bucket of projects and investments that we make in research is just to partner uh, with uh, different teams and groups across Microsoft to to help them tackle their hard problems. And so that, that's one 
but then there's a second one, which is attempting to be more inventive or, or disruptive. Um, and, you know, for that part, I have a, a team that's a lot like um, the managing partners in the venture capital uh, firm. And we try to encourage as much openness as possible and do things to generate idea flow and encourage people to come to us and pitch their ideas. And we rarely say yes or no when they come to pitch, but usually the response is, you have a a nugget of a great idea. Why don't you work with us and let's keep working on that idea uh, to get it to a point where it's interesting. And then the third bucket is uh, a lot of focus on alternative markets and especially China. Uh, China is turning out to be such a vibrant uh, and unique ecosystem. And a lot of the ideas like chatbot technologies that are just going like crazy and, yeah. and generating a lot of value in China, we're, we're learning a lot and, and seeing how to bring those kinds of technologies into other markets like in the U.S. So those three things, I think, end up being very important. And that for me, it's important to have some balance um, across those three those three buckets. Huh, that's, that makes sense. It's a good way to lay it out. And uh, so unfortunately, I think we're out of time. I, I might uh, have to try to convince you to come back in a year because uh, I still have uh, so many more questions. But really appreciate your time, Peter. This is a, you uh, have a, quite a background and what you're doing now is really interesting. So I know you're busy, busy guy. So I appreciate your time and thoughts and uh, energy here on the show. Well, I, I've uh, had fun chatting, so uh, so thanks for having me on your your podcast. It's been fun. All right, great, and th- and thanks for everyone for listening to another episode of Flyover Labs. I appreciate it, and uh, we'll see you next time.